Good morning, Sunset. I hope this morning finds you recovering in, in a good way from a wonderful Christmas celebration with, with friends and family and, and loved ones. Um, my family and I, we have three little children in case you don't, don't know me, but we, we flew to Virginia on the Easter, East Coast where my family lives and um, it, was, it was a really wonderful celebration um, seeing together. My, my four-year-old son recited Luke 2 and, and we sing Christmas hymns and it was really wonderful and then read the Christmas story together and just really worshiping as a family, um, celebrating what Christ, Christ's incarnation. Um, and I think sometimes Christmas is, feels to me as, as kind of a picture of what's really right with the world. It's, it's you're, you come together, you worship together, you remember who Christ is, you worship him, you celebrate him, it's the togetherness about it. Um, but sometimes also Christmas, and this may be some of your experience, is almost the opposite. It's, it's a, like a picture of what's wrong with the world. Um, for, for several years in our Christmas celebrations when our family would get together, it wasn't because of death. It was because of um, brokenness, re- broken relationships that there was always somebody missing. So every time we got together, there was, there was someone who was supposed to be there. And when you celebrate Christmas, sure, it's, it's, it's great. There's joy involved in worshiping Christ, but there's also this feeling of, wow, there's somebody who's supposed to be here who's not here. And there's hurt in that. And I, I know and in the future, this is part of living the human life. I know in the future that there will be another time when, when there will be people in my family who will move on. When we come together for Christmas, there will be that same sense of, of loss. There's somebody who's supposed to be here that's not here. And I, I think in a very real way that, that Christmas is something that reminds you of what's right with the world. As we remember our Savior who came, he, he's God who became a man, dwelt among us, the, the healing and the wholeness that's in Christ. But also the, there's, a, there's a heightened sense of loss and, and brokenness that comes in Christmas as well. And I, I want to have that in mind as we, we think about Jesus. And we're, we're in Matthew. Uh, we're turning to our series in Matthew after four weeks in the Christmas series. Uh, but Jesus's ministry is, is really bringing healing and, and a reversal of the brokenness of the world that we live in. That what we see Jesus doing as he ministers, he's not just randomly going about healing people. That There's really a purpose to this. Is he is, he's previewing new humanity and redeemed creation. The reversal of sin effects. And this really culminates as we see in, in his resurrection. At the end the greatest consequence of, of sin is death. And Jesus defeats death and declares it to be null and void and empty as he raises from the dead. And that's what Jesus' ministry really highlights is, is that yes, there is sin and brokenness and death as a result of Adam's fall. But the wholeness is coming. Reversal of sin's curse is coming. And redemption and reconciliation is coming. And Jesus' resurrection declares that finally to be true, and we look forward to the full realization of that as well. Um, moving to the section of Matthew and review, if you have your, your sermon notes in front of you, I'm not going to go into this in very great detail, but we've been out of Matthew for a few weeks, so I just want to review what Matthew's been doing in his gospel. But Matthew is presenting Jesus as the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the long-awaited, often-promised Jewish Messiah. He's the son of David. He's the Davidic king that's promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, he's the king who comes down from heaven to our broken and fallen world that is full of suffering and evil and pain. 
in order to rescue and redeem those who put their trust in him. Did something go off with the sound? Or am I good? Okay. Um, Jesus calls his followers to a lifetime of discipleship. We saw fishermen leave their nets and old lives behind to follow him. And we will later see Matthew himself in the next chapter. Matthew himself, he's a tax collector. He leaves behind his tax booth to follow Jesus. And this is the call that Jesus has. Leave, follow me. And they leave behind their fishing nets. And in chapter 9, Matthew, the author of the book, is going to leave behind his tax collecting booth and follow Christ to follow the king. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets. Matthew is very steeped in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah. Um, but he's the, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law and the prophets. His words are life and truth. But hearing his words is not enough. It's insufficient just to hear what Jesus says. He must be obeyed. If Jesus is the king, then the right response to Christ is obedience. Today's text... And gives us a preview of renewed creation and restored humanity that is previewed in the earthly ministry of Christ and will have its full realization in his future reign. This text calls upon us to respond to him with trust and obedience in the life of faith and discipleship. This is a rather long passage. I'm going to go through the whole of chapter 8. So I'm not going to read it all at once, but I'm going to, as I go, read each episode because there's six episodes that, that come together to form these points. And as I read it, I want you to look for a few things. First, in the first three healings, each person that receives healing has some sort of social stigma, something that makes them an outsider that Jesus addresses straight on, head on. He's going to address that social stigma. There's lepers who are not to be touched. He touches them. And I want you to notice that as we go through. Um, Secondly, each person that receives healing is in some sense an outsider. They're not somebody who's a full member of the community. They're somebody who's, who's ostracized in some sense or not able to fully participate in worship or in the community in some sense. And number three, each person, I think Matthew is doing this very intentionally, each person in the first three healings are are somebody who is given to us as a model for how to respond to and approach Christ. I don't think they're just random healings. Jesus healed many, many people. But I think that Matthew picks these three healings as a a model for us how to respond to Christ. And I want you to watch for that. And then after we finish the first three healings, there's a series of episodes where people respond badly to Christ, some more so than others, but I, I think this is a contrast. And so I think Matthew is showing us how we should approach Christ and respond to Christ, and then some negative examples of how we ought not to. So those, that's what I want you to, to look for as we go through Matthew chapter 8. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll move into the, into the text. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that as we open your word, as we look to your word, that your spirit will work in our hearts and in our minds. I pray that you will help us to, to, to submit to the authority of Christ uh, as, as is reflected in your word. I pray that you will help us to grow in our faith. Um, Father, um, sometimes our faith is strong, sometimes our faith is weak, but we echo the, the prayer of the, the father, the demon-possessed son in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 9. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Sometimes our faith is, is weak help our unbelief. Father, we are so grateful for your son and and just the celebration that we had of his advent, of his incarnation the last month. Um, Father, we want to thank you for him and thank you for the scriptures which tell us of of what he was like and how he healed and how he brought um, wholeness and healing where where there's brokenness and disease. Um, Father, we want to honor you and we pray that as we study your word and look at your word that you will be honored and we pray that your spirit will work in us to mold us and shape us into the image of Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen. Amen. 
So um, look with me at Matthew chapter 8. I'm going to read the first four verses here to start. When he, this is Jesus, came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying, I am willing, be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. In your, in your study notes, if you're following along, um, the first bullet point there under he took our illnesses and bore our diseases, a leper was unclean. He was unable to participate in the congregational worship at the temple, and anyone who touched him would be defiled and rendered unclean themselves. So although unclean, undesirable, and an outcast, this leper approaches Jesus with faith and deference, and Jesus' touch reverses the defilement of leprosy and restores an outcast to full fellowship. This is the first of three related stories, but leprosy as we know it today is, is sometimes people call it Hansen's disease, and it's a very specific disease where you, you're not able to feel pain, and sometimes parts of your body literally rot and can fall off. But actually, in the, in the biblical world, leprosy covered a, a much wider range of diseases. It wasn't just Hansen's disease. It can really refer to any kind of disease that is a skin disease. And so sometimes it would be very painful and sometimes be very deadly and dangerous, and, and sometimes it might just be a, a skin disease that you would have that would cause you to be outside of the community. Remember, this is pre the medical knowledge that we have today. They didn't, they didn't possess in those days. And so when somebody had a disease, a skin disease that you could see, they, they were removed from society because this is, is dangerous. It can infect the rest of society. Um, but the, really the greatest suffering for leprosy most of the time wasn't the physical torment. It was, it was the isolation. It was being outside of the community, not allowed to, to relate with other people and be with other people. Um, let me read to you from Leviticus, and this is this sounds harsh, but this is again, it's, it protects people from from diseases. But Leviticus chapter thirteen, talking, giving instructions for leprosy, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothing and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, "Unclean, unclean!" And he shall remain unclean, unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone, and his dwelling shall be outside the camp. I mean, to enter into that for for a minute there is that when you're when you have leprosy you're you're not involved in the community you can't worship in the temple with everybody else no one would touch you if you were walking down the street people would have walked to the other side of the street you're ostracized you're outside of the community you are not one of us until you're healed you are unclean untouchable as a leper and that's really the the greatest suffering of of leprosy is the social ostracization those with leprosy are not permitted to worship in the temple, and it were not permitted to have un- com- contact with the uh, community until they were pronounced clean by the priest. And touching a leprous person would render you unclean, and and would you, you would be unable. You would have to go through purification before you yourself could could worship in the temple. So this is something extreme uh, social um, suffering, as well as just a, a physical suffering. Now, this encounter between Jesus and the leper most likely takes place in the countryside. We know from the parallel passages there's doesn't seem like there's witnesses to this um, to this healing. So Jesus is out in the country because the leper is in the city, and he comes and he, he comes to Jesus. This takes great boldness. The leper's not supposed to approach people, but he goes to Jesus because he knows that Jesus is the only one who can heal him and make him clean. So he approaches him with boldness. And there's two things I want you to see in this story.
story about the leper. First, he shows faith in Jesus' ability. He says, if you're willing, I know you can make me clean. I know you can make me clean. He shows faith that Jesus has the ability to cleanse him and to heal him. But secondly, I, I, I think... This is really important. He also um, submits to Jesus' will. If you are willing, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He doesn't approach Jesus as if Jesus has to do this or Jesus is in any obligation. He's submitting to Jesus as he makes his request for healing. Um, And I also think this this is so moving. But when Jesus heals this man, we know that Jesus doesn't have to touch people to heal them. The very next story, he heals somebody from a great distance. But when Jesus heals this leper, this person who's probably not had any human touch, as long as he's had the disease, it could have been months, it could have been years, it could have been decades, this man has not been touched by another human being, and Jesus reaches out and he touches him to heal him. And that that to me is so moving. But Jesus is not just healing this man. He does that. The man is cleaned, made clean. He's healed immediately. He's also restoring him to the community. He can now participate in worship. He can now be touched. He can now go back to his family. And he's bringing him from an outcast to to somebody who belongs again. Um, The fact that Jesus touches this man. So, again, touching him makes you unclean. I don't think Jesus is, is going against the law and saying that the law is null and void. I don't think that's the point he's making here at all. I think he's fulfilling the law. If you remember... Um, a similar type of story. There's this woman with an issue of blood who, who's unclean socially, and she comes and she touches Jesus. Uh, most, most of the time, they would understand that that would make Jesus unclean, but what happens immediately, she's healed, and she's made clean. So instead of Jesus being made unclean by being touched by somebody who's unclean, the unclean person is made clean, and that's the same thing we see here. The leper is touched by Jesus, and instead of Jesus being defiled, the leper is cleansed and made clean and made whole, and he's restored. So Jesus isn't doing away with the laws. He's fulfilling them. The next episode is is similar. Somebody who's outside of the community. The, The next story is about a man who is a centurion. He's a Gentile. And as a Gentile, you, you don't go into the, the Jewish temple. You're somebody who, again, is excluded from full worship. But we're going to see Jesus, again, um, facing the stigma straight on. Starting in verse 5 of chapter 8. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him and said, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I want you to go to heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. The next point on your, your study sheet, a centurion 
as a Gentile and a Roman soldier would have been viewed as an oppressor and an enemy of the Jewish people. As an uncircumcised Gentile, he would not have been allowed to worship at the Jewish temple, but he approaches the Jewish Messiah in faith and obedience, and Jesus' words heal his servant. I think some details about, uh, about Roman soldiers and their lives will help us understand some of what's going on here, but a centurion was a Roman soldier. He was typically in charge of between 80 to 100 men. Um, that's where we get the same word century as from centurion, like 100. Um, they usually achieve their status by being promoted from the ranks. So a centurion, he probably was a regular foot soldier that through his, his bravery in battle would have been promoted to being a centurion. Um, you usually served for 20 years, and during those 20 years, you were not permitted to have any legal family. So you did not have a legal, I know in, in some of the movies they do, but not in, in real life they didn't. So you had about 20 years, there's no legal family. Sometimes that they had uh, like a concubine or something, but that would be a temporary thing as you were moved from place to place and you would leave, leave them behind as you were moved. Um, they participated in ritualistic pagan oaths. They, wor- they worshipped the emperor as divine, as God. That was part of what it meant to be a centurion. And they were not typically loved by the Jewish people. And many people, many Jewish people hated them. Again, their people occupied occupying your country. This is our land, and these are foreign soldiers. And if you remember Jesus in the temple, on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, love your enemies and do good to those who, who abuse you. I think what the people who would have popped to their mind and is the Roman soldiers, people like this man. These are the enemies. These are the people that you hate. And Jesus is saying, no, love your enemies, the people who are oppressing you and, and mistreating you. Um, now, we know from the other passage, if you, if you looked at a parallel passage in Luke, that this man's actually somewhat of an exception to this. He's somebody that the Jewish leaders look up to. He has built a synagogue for them. Matthew leaves that out, and I think Matthew leaves that out in order to highlight that this man is a foreigner. He's an outsider. So like the leper is a foreigner and an outsider, the centurion is a foreigner and an outsider. And I think that there's a parallel being made there. Um, other things here, I, I think part of what makes this so moving is, again, you don't have permanent family as a centurion. Most centurions would have had one servant, if they had any, and, and that would have been the closest thing you had to family. So as you moved around, you would take this one one servant to go with you, and the word he uses is actually sometimes a word that's used for son. We know it's a servant because of the, the parallel passages, but it can mean son or servant. So this is somebody he's, he's close to, that he loves, that he cares for, and this man, is his servant is suffering. It, it could be polio, we don't know, but he's paralyzed and in great pain. We, we can't know for sure, but polio fits the diagnosis of that there. But this is somebody, he's coming to Jesus because he loves his servant and his servants in great pain and he wants healing. It, it may or may not be reflected in your translation but Jesus' response in the Greek is framed as a question and it's a loaded question. Am I to go and heal him? That's Jesus' response. Um, there's a lot in this. For a, a Jewish rabbi to go into the house of a Gentile is defiling. Um, if you remember in Acts when Peter um, goes to Cornelius' house he has to have a vision from God before he'll go into the house of a Gentile and when he does, he goes into the house of the Gentile, he preaches to them. What immediately follows is his Jewish friends coming around and saying, hey, why did you do that? I mean, you broke the law here. And he said, well, I got a vision from God. And the whole next chapter is really him defending himself. So this is a really big deal. So this man comes and says, heal my servant. Jesus says, am I going to go to your house? 
Is, is that what you want me to do? Because that, that's in the social world of the New Testament, it would have been unthinkable for a Jewish rabbi to visit the home of a, a Roman soldier. But the soldier's response, again, shows, like the leper, a faith in Jesus' ability to heal. I know you can just say the word and he'll be healed, and a deference to Jesus as Lord, that you're in charge, you have authority, and all you need to do is speak. And Jesus' response, again, he heads right at that social stigma, that this is an outsider by, by race, by ethnicity. This is not somebody who's a part of the Jewish people. This is not somebody who he normally would have had close relationships with. He's a Gentile, but yet his faith is greater than anyone else he has encountered. And although Jesus' interactions with Gentiles are rare in the Gospels, he's anticipating a massive salvation for the Gentiles. He says many will come to salvation from the east and from the west, from outside of Israel. Many will come to salvation and feast with him at Abraham's table. So although he doesn't enter enter his house, he really is affording him a greater honor feasting with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And if it was unthinkable, I think we can lose the, the power of this passage here a little bit in our context, but if it was unthinkable for a Jewish rabbi to enter a Gentile house, for many, it was even more unthinkable for, for many of the people of the day to imagine Gentiles, especially Roman soldiers, feasting with Abraham and the Messiah in the kingdom. This was an unthinkable um, idea. Uh, this, is, this is something prophesied throughout the book of Isaiah, and I don't have time to go into all of them, but there is this motif of, of Yahweh, of, of the God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel, feasting with his people, but also including the nations, where the nations come and feast with Yahweh, with the Messiah. Um, and this was understood to be a prophecy that would be fulfilled in the Messianic age. One of the many examples of, of this in Isaiah is Isaiah ch- chapter 25, verses 6 through 8, and it says, And Yahweh, Lord of hosts, will prepare for all the nations on this mountain a banquet of rich foods, a banquet of preserved wines, a spread of rich food and a banquet of preserved refined wines. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering that is over all peoples, even the covering woven on all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord Yahweh will wipe away the tears from all faces and the shame of his people he will remove from all the earth for Yahweh has spoken. So this is this image of Jew and Gentile, all the nations of the earth coming and feasting with God in the Messianic age. But, although this is prophesied and this is clear in scripture, if you look at some of the Jewish interpreters of the time, they really couldn't believe this. One rabbinic interpretation of this passage is that Yahweh will invite the nations to a feast, but that it's a trap and it's a trick. There's there's one interpretation that talking about this passage that says that the the nations will come to a feast, but it's a trick and then Yahweh will slaughter them and kill them and the, the blood will come up to the horse's bridle and all this stuff because they couldn't imagine that God would invite the Gentiles to feast with him. But what Jesus is, is saying here is that this, this man who's an outsider, he's not part of the Jewish community, he's somebody who would be, would be seen as being on the outside, will be included. That people like him will be included. Because what matters, what gets you into the kingdom is not your ethnicity, but your response to the king of the kingdom. And this man has the right response to the king of the kingdom. And it doesn't matter if you're Jew or you're Gentile, what matters is how you respond to the king. And that's what's being highlighted here. So like the healing of the leper, Jesus is taking somebody who's on the outside, and here because of his ethnic identity, he's unable to participate in worship. He not only answers his request, but he's including him prophetically in the kingdom. So he's going straight at that outsideness 
weakness here. And also, like the leper, he's a model of faith. He has faith in Jesus' power and ability, but he also um, models submission and uh, deference to Jesus' will and authority. The next one, I, I think there's some similarities here, too. It's a little bit shorter, but continue with me in Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all those who were sick. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. The next point in, in your study notes here, Peter's mother-in-law, sick with fever, is healed by Jesus' touch and responds by serving the Lord who healed her. Jesus is Israel's Messiah and the suffering servant. He's the suffering servant spoken of in Isaiah and in the Old Testament prophets who brings healing for sin, death, and disease. Now, this healing is shorter than the previous two, but some things in common here. First, like the healing of the leper, Jesus is touching somebody according to the social customs of the, time, of the day. You aren't supposed to touch. Rabbinic um, commentators said it was wrong to touch a person with fever, that that would defile you. That's not in the Old Testament, but again, he reaches out, he touches somebody who you're not supposed to touch, and his touch heals her. So he goes straight at the social taboo there. Second, although it's true to a lesser extent, than the leper and the centurion, but the, the leper can't participate fully in worship because he's a leper, he's an outsider. The centurion can't participate fully in worship because he's a, he's a soldier, he's a Roman soldier, he's a Gentile. And women, although they could go into the court of the women, they couldn't go fully into the, the, the innermost parts of the temple. They, they were a little bit on the outside. So again, we have three people here who are a little bit on the outside, but who, who are models for how you respond to Christ, how you respond and how you approach him. And I, I think the, what, what Matthew's after here with Peter's mother-in-law is that she exemplifies the proper response to Jesus. After being healed from a potentially deadly disease, she rises and serves Jesus. Her life is spared. She immediately does what any follower of Christ should do. She serves him. And I, I think this is given as a model to us as well. So that Matthew is, is specifically chose these stories, I, I think is, is supported by his, his kind of closes with this quote from Isaiah. This quote from Isaiah is from Isaiah chapter 53, which is a prediction of the Messiah's taking our sicknesses and our diseases. So Jesus is doing what the Messiah was prophesied to do, healing disease, casting out evil forces, restoring the outcast. And these stories give us a model for how we ought to approach Christ and how we ought to respond to Christ. But the second half of chapter 8 is really more giving us the negative example. We're going to have insiders, people who, who are on the inside of the community, who respond in less than ideal ways, some worse than others. Um, moving on in chapter 8, verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. So they're going to cross the Sea of Galilee. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So Jesus' call to discipleship may mean the loss of material wealth, comfort, and security. Jesus lived his life devoid of basic creature comforts, and following him, as we see here, may not aid your bottom line. The, the scribe is an ultimate insider. If you want to contrast the scribe with the, the leper, a leper is somebody who's outside of the community. He's somebody who has to yell, unclean, unclean, everywhere he goes. He would cross the other side to avoid him. The scribe is somebody who 
you'd look up to, who you'd admire, that this is somebody who knows the law backwards and forwards. He's somebody who deserves your respect. And if you, you approached him, you would approach him with deference, maybe asking his opinion on something, but somebody who would definitely afford respect. But he, he, we were given his initial desire to follow Jesus, but I think we're to understand here from a lack of, of a follow-up that he doesn't, that the cost is too high, that Jesus says, no, following me means leaving comfort behind. Um, Jesus, sometimes, sometimes we overestimate Jesus' poverty as a carpenter. Carpenters actually in the ancient world were a little bit more wealthy than the average person. Not wealthy by our standards, but in those days, just a little bit more um, comfort than the average person. A little bit more um, margin, if you will. But Jesus left all that behind, and he's basically homeless. He's going from city to city. He's, de- he's depending upon the hospitality of other people for him to have a place to lay his head. So he has given up any kind of comfort that he has to, to do his ministry. And this is, this is too much for some people to, to, to live this sort of life. Secondly, Jesus' call to discipleship trumps even our most basic obligations to friends and family. When our loyalty to, and duty to Christ is at odds with our duty and obligation to our families, we must be willing to make difficult sacrifices. So a second insider, a disciple, this is somebody who's a disciple of Christ, he requests to bury his father before following Jesus. Now, this is a little less harsh than this reading the verse might be, because it doesn't mean I need to just go out and bury my father and I'll be back in a couple days. That Burying your father is a cultural idiom, which means like fulfilling your family responsibilities. So we even see Jesus doing this from the cross, where he's, he appoints John to take care of his mother. That's in a sense burying your father. It means taking care of your family affairs. So this is something that actually could be a couple of years delay. So he's saying, hey, I have these obligations and duty to my family. Let me finish those obligations and duties, and then I'll follow you. And Jesus is saying, no, let the dead bury, bury their own dead. And I think that what Jesus is saying here is similar. If you remember when Jesus says that if you want to be my disciple, you have to hate your father and mother and come follow me. That doesn't mean literally hate your parents. Um, that's not what it means. But it means, again, that loyalty and duty and allegiance to Christ trumps any other obligations and loyalties and duties you have, even the most basic loyal, loyalties and duties to your own family. And what Jesus is saying is let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. But you, those who are alive, those who have life in me, follow me. So you, he's, he's to give up his duties to his family in order to follow Christ. Moving on in verse 23. And when he had gotten to the boat, so now he's getting to the boat to cross the Sea of Galilee, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep. And they went and they woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, you of little faith? And he rose, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of a man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. As sometimes happens on the Sea of Galilee, a, a great storm rose, and they can rise very, very suddenly on the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's kind of part of its geography. It's a little bit lower, and sometimes it can be great calm, and all of a sudden there's this huge storm, and that's what's happening. So a great storm arose. It's threatening the ship, and I'm, as I'm sure you remember, a, a fair number of Jesus' disciples are fishermen, at least six of them. And, and so about half of them are fishermen, 
and if fishermen who are used to storms and used to being on the boat, if they're afraid, this must be a real doozy of a storm. So they're terrified. They're used to storms. They're not like me. If I was on a boat and there was a storm, it would be a little one. I'd be, I'd be scared. But the, these guys know what they're talking about. So this is a very scary storm. And they're terrified. Um, but their response, although they go to the right person, their response reflects less faith and less confidence that befits somebody who has followed Jesus and witnessed his works firsthand. Their response in the, in the Greek is like two words. Like, we perish. Like, we're going to die. Save us. We're going to die. It doesn't reflect the faith and trust they should have in Jesus' authority and power. And, and Jesus, the creator um, over all, of all that is, the authority over all that is, and this is amazing. He just stands up. He rebukes the winds and the waves. He's like, stop it. And there's immediately a calm. And their response is, is a marveling, but it also reflects a lack in their Christology, a lack in their understanding of who Christ is. Like, who is this? Um, that even the winds and the, the waves, the sea, obey him. Uh, Jesus is the creator of all that is. Who is this? He's the king. He's the creator. He's the one in charge of all of, all of creation. And so there's, there's a lack of understanding of who Jesus really is, a full understanding. And I think as a side note, I think this is true for us too, that any lack of faith that we have, is is a defect in our understanding of who Christ is. Any time that we're, we're, our faith is less than what it should be, it's because we don't have a high enough view of who Christ is. And I think that was true of, of the disciples here as well. Our, our final episode, beginning in verse 28 um, of Matthew chapter 8. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Now, if I was with Jesus and these men came out, demon-possessed, talking like that, I would be very scared. Um, but, now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. And that would really terrify me. If I was one of the people watching the pigs, and all of a sudden they became demon-possessed, this whole herd of pigs, and jumped into the sea, I would run. And by the way, that's what they did. So they, so when the, as he said, they go into the waters and the herdsmen fled going to the city and they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all of the city came out to meet Jesus. This sounds great. The whole city comes out to meet Jesus, but it's not a welcoming party. And when they saw him, they begged him, please leave our region. Please leave our region. So there's a lot of issues in this passage I don't have time to discuss. But I want to focus on, on two things primarily. First, I want to focus on Jesus' authority and his power. And then secondly, I want to focus on the response to Jesus. So in your notes here, Jesus' healing of demon-possessed men returned them to their communities and their families and restored safety to the roads. But the response of the city indicated a greater concern for the loss of material wealth than the restoration brought by Christ. A greater concern for the loss of material wealth than the restoration brought by Christ. So crossing the lake, Jesus arrives in Decapolis, which is mostly a Gentile region. You can see the flavor of that by the herds of pigs. Pigs are unclean. Jewish people didn't eat them. You wouldn't have seen a lot of pigs in Palestine. He's gone into Decapolis, more of a, a Gentile region. And he, when he arrives there, they have two demon-possessed men that come out, meeting him from the tombs. So again, you see the outsiders. They're living outside of society among the dead people. So they come out. Um, 
in Mark's account, there's a lot more de- detail here. That This is the passage where the, the demon said, what's your name? And they say, we are legion for many. Again, that's kind of terrifying to me. Um, and then the, 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 the strength of the demon possessed, they're breaking chains and all that kind of stuff. That's the same passage here. Matthew doesn't give us these details, but the picture we get still is terrifying nonetheless. They live in the tombs away from society and they terrorize the roads. Nobody can pass by because of these demon-possessed guys that terrorize the roads. But Jesus' authority over the, the demons is absolute. They're terrified of him. Um, they're deferential to his authority. They ask, are you coming to torment us before the proper time? It's a recognition that he will someday be their judge and executioner and that his power greatly exceeds theirs. So they recognize who he is. They're terrified of him. Um, when he casts the men out into the, uh, cast the demons out into the pigs and the herds are, are possessed and they plunge into the water, the herdsmen, they, mo- they most likely didn't own the pigs. They're most likely just regular people. There's probably pigs from several people that they're watching or perhaps one wealthy person who owns a herd of pigs. But this is, this is no small deal. This is uh, the loss of material wealth for a whole herd of pigs to plunge into the water is affecting the livelihoods of many people. This is a big deal. They've lost something significant here. Um, but the people of the city, they're Gentiles, like the centurion earlier, most likely. They, they, they reject Jesus and they send him on his way. The, the proper response would be to worship him and to see, wow, look what he did. He cast out these evil spirits. He restored these men to their families. He restored safety um, to our roads. But their hearts are hardened by the care of the things of this world. And I, I think that's really what Matthew wants to highlight there is that they're more concerned about material things than they are about the king of creation that's in front of them. Moving into the section entitled Jesus is the King of Renewed Creation. I think there's some some really important theological truths to be gleaned from this passage. Jesus' earthly ministry, as I said earlier, it's not just a collection of random miracles that he goes um, about healing people haphazardly as he encounters them. It's really, Jesus' earthly ministry is a preview of renewed and redeemed creation. So sin brought brokenness, disease, separation from God, separation from each other, and death. But Jesus' ministry is the beginning of the reversal of sin's dehabilitating effect on God's good creation. Adam's sin brought death, disease, isolation. Jesus is reversing these things. Isolation from God, from fellow human beings. There was a reign of evil over the world because of Adam's sin. But by his healings, what Jesus is doing is he's affirming God's love for human beings, God's love for the world that he created. He's reversing the effects of the fall by making the blind see, by making the crippled walk, making the leper whole. And ultimately, these re- this reversal of the effects of sin culminates in his resurrection as, as death itself is declared to be null and void and empty that Jesus defeats death in his res- resurrection. And that's really what his, his ministry is about, is, is reversing the curse of Adam's sin and of the fall and the negative effects that Jesus brings wholeness and healing to those who are broken and sick and diseased. And ultimately, death itself is shown to be, um, to, to be empty and to be, um, have an expiration date. So what we see in these stories is a preview of the new earth described in Revelation chapter 2, a place without sin, disease, and death. And Jesus is reversing the effects of sin. And we're a part of this. Uh, New creation is not just a thing far off in the future. I think sometimes we think that way. Although we don't see an end to all the effects of sin in this life, the work of Christ in our lives through the Holy Spirit is the beginning of a new humanity. Jesus is the second Adam, is restoring and redeeming what was lost in the fall in our lives as Christ is formed in us through the Spirit. Um, Like Jesus previewed in eternity without the consequences of sin, as he healed, as he cast out demons, and ultimately defeated death itself. 
12. So our lives are meant to be a preview of eternity as sin is defeated in us and as we are reshaped through his spirit into the likeness of Christ. And secondly, Jesus is not only the one who conquers sin and death, he's the rightful king over all creation. He has authority over physical ailments, spiritual forces, and death. Whether now or in the future, all things will be set right and every knee will bow. And we see this highlighted in the responses to Jesus from soldiers to lepers to the weather to demonic forces. Jesus has ultimate power and ultimate authority. Moving into the section of responding to God's word, I'm after two, two things primarily here. So first, many of the people that Jesus heals in the Gospels, I, I'm, I think Matthew is presenting to us as examples. This is how we ought to respond. Their simple faith and humble deference to Christ are models for us when we ask for healing and provision. So when we ask for healing... Because we live in a world that's broken and people that we love get sick or we get sick or um, people, people die. And we ask God, when we approach God for healing or we approach God for a miracle, I think we're supposed to have faith in God's ability to heal. Like the leper who came, if you're willing, you're able. And the centurion who says, I know you can just speak a word and he'll be healed. That we're, we're to have faith in who God is. That God has the ability to heal. That Christ can perform miracles. I think that's really something that's important. I, I think I referenced Mark chapter 9 earlier. I, I, when we struggle with this, I, I think the, the father of the demon-possessed son in Mark chapter 9, uh, when Jesus asked, do you believe? And he says, yes, I believe. Help my unbelief. I think that's a good model for us who are to have faith in God's ability to heal. But the second principle here I think is also really important that when, when they ask for healing, especially you see this in the leper, he says, if you are willing, you are able. We, we don't approach God and say, God, this is what you must do or that you're somehow obligated to do this. But we know that God is able and that's what it, that, that's what it means to have faith in that circumstance is full faith in God's power and ability to do these things, but also submission because he's God. He's king, not us. We don't dictate to God that we submit ourselves to his will. So I think this is a good model for us in approaching um, prayer for, for those who are sick and those who are who for ourselves in disease or illnesses and, and such. So uh, faith in God's ability as well as acceptance of God's will. But I think it's also important to remember that this is not the end. That all, ultimately, for the believer, all illnesses and all disease and all death, all tears, all sorrow, all that's going to go away. And that's again part of the Christian hope that even if our prayers are not answered the way we want them to be in this life, that we have hope ultimately all of the effects of sin and death and the curse will be healed secondly being a disciple of Christ means that he never takes second place there are competing loyalties in our life. Some of these loyalties are legitimate. I mean, the, the man in this story, um, he has loyalty to his family, but Jesus is calling to have a greater loyalty to him. And I, I would ask you to ask yourself, what obligations in your life take first place? Is, it, is your obligations to yourself? Is it obligations to your work, to your employment? Is it your obligations to your family? But for the Christian, all, ob all obligations other than our obligation and duty to Christ are secondary. This may mean being called to be a missionary. Um, it's less severe than it used to be, but it's, it still is a sacrifice. But there were people in, in the mission movements who really did leave everything 
to, to go to Africa, to go to South America, to go to Asia. They left everything behind to, to go follow Christ. That meant not bearing your father and mother. That meant when that they died, you weren't there. That was a very real um, sacrifice. And, and maybe God would call some of us to make those kind of sacrifices. This might mean that you don't take a job that could advance your career or make a lot of money, but this job wouldn't be honoring to Christ. Or maybe it's not even that it wouldn't be honoring to Christ. It wouldn't help form Christ in you or it would take you away from a ministry that God has called you to do. Maybe God has called you to do something in your church or your community or your family or, or something that, that taking this job would call you away from that. That no, our, our duty first is to Christ. It's not to our job. It's not to our employment. It's not to our family. And this may mean at times that you have to say no to your family and make sacrifices for your family. I, I grew up as a, uh, as a son of an Air Force chaplain. And I, I made sacrifices too. It wasn't just my dad that made sacrifices. Part of being the son of an Air Force chaplain meant that you made, you made sacrifices. Putting your children first may seem like a good idea, but it can also be idolatrous. And it can give them the idea that they're, they're the king of the world. And it's not. Christ is the king of the world. And so, again, I think the point here is that our obligations and our duty are to Christ first, not anything else or anyone else. I want to close because I, I really think this is the point of this, of this passage and of Jesus is healing with the hope that we have in Christ. So we have hope because of what Christ has done. Sicknesses were healed by Christ. Evil spirits were cast out by Christ. Broken relationships were healed by Christ. Death was defeated by Christ. Your sin was paid for by Christ. Your salvation is accomplished by Christ. We have hope because of that. But the hope that we have in Christ is not just in the past. It's also a present reality. This is something that is happening in you. You are being transformed by the Holy Spirit into the image of Christ. You are being, tra- you are being made new. Their old self is being put to death. Christ is being formed in you. You're becoming more and more alive as you grow in him. It's something that's happening now. It's not just something that happened in the past. And it was also a future hope that all the effects of sin and of the fall have their expiration date. This will all end. Any trouble that you're facing now, it, it could be very real trouble, very real suffering, no matter how dire it is, will have an end. No matter how painful it is, how hard it is, no matter how little you, have, you understand it, disease will end, evil will end, and death itself will end. In Adam, we all died, but in Christ, all things are being made new. Please stand and pray with me as we close. Father, thank you for the, the, the beautiful stories that are in your word and scripture of these, of these people who approached you, who approached Christ in faith, and faith of who he was, and an understanding of, of, of him uh, being able to heal their diseases, being able to cleanse them, but also in an understanding that he was the authority, that he is the king, that he is the God of the universe. Father, like the, the father in Mark um, chapter 9, um, we want to believe. Help our unbelief. Grow our faith. Father, I also pray that you'll help us to, to grow in submitting to you and submitting to, you, to your son and to your word um, and, and put the other obligations and duties that we have in second place, not in first place. Father, I pray that as we enter this new year, you will help us to grow more and more into the likeness of Christ, that this will be a year where Christ is formed in us and the old man is put to death and where you are honored and glorified in our words, our actions, and our speech. Father, I pray for us as we go that you will bless us, your spirit will work in our lives, and we pray in your son's name and through his spirit. Amen.